This is the Yakazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. In this episode of the Ongizim Brief, which was developed in collaboration with our partners at ADC Review, Journal of Antibody Drug Conjugates, I'm talking with Bill Newell. Bill is the Chief Executive Officer and a member of the Board of Directors of Sutro Biopharma, a clinical stage drug discovery, development and manufacturing company. The company is using precise protein engineering and rational design to advance the development of the next generation oncology therapeutics for areas of unmet medical need and where the current standard of care is suboptimal. To date, Sutro's technology platform has led to the development of cytokine-based immuno-oncology therapeutics, antibody drug conjugates, or ADCs, vaccines, and bispecific antibodies. In addition to the development of its own pipeline of novel drugs, Sutro is also collaborating with selective pharmaceutical and biotech companies to discover and develop novel next-generation therapeutics. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncogene Brief. The Oncogene Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal Oncogene at oncogene.com, that is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E.com, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment and cancer prevention. This episode of the Oncogene Brief was made in collaboration with our partners at ADC Review, Journal of Antibody Drug Conjugates at adcreview.com. For information on how to support this program, visit our website at oncoisine.com. And if you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. This is the Oncozine Brief with Peter Hofland. In today's episode of the Oncozine Brief, which was developed in collaboration with ADC Review, Journal of Antibody Drug Conjugates, I'm talking with Bill Newell. Bill Newell is the Chief Executive Officer and a member of the Board of Directors of Sutro Biopharma. In this program, we talk about antibody drug conjugates or ADCs. ADCs are highly targeted biopharmaceutical drugs that combine monoclonal antibodies specific to surface antigens presented on particular tumor cells with highly potent anti-cancer agents linked via chemical linker. Today, there are about 10 approved ADCs on the market and many more in development. And as a result, we can definitely say that antibody drug conjugates have become a powerful class of therapeutic agents in oncology and hematology. In today's program, we talk about ADCs being developed by Sutro and the company's partners and the biopharmaceutical industry in general. On the phone with me is Bill Newell. He is the Chief Executive Officer and a member of the Board of Directors of Sutro Biopharma. Bill, welcome to the Oncogene Brief. Thank you, Peter. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Now, before we're going to talk about Sutro, a question that has nothing to do with the company or with ADCs or with oncology drug development. But over the last year, we were all dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, how are you, your family, your team members coping or coming out of this pandemic? Oh, thank you for asking, Peter. We've been very fortunate that no one has been seriously affected uh, in Sutro or the Sutro family, if I 
can go that broadly by COVID. And that today I can proudly report that but a handful of employees have been vaccinated. So we have four drugs in the clinic. We'll talk about those drugs. And our manufacturing facility really had to find new ways to get the work done so that we never had interruption of supply for our patients. And because we have a pipeline of other things that we're working on in research, our research team had to adjust their work schedule and practices as well. But as California has now rolled back many of the restrictions on workplace rules, we're getting everybody back and pretty much looking to return to pre-pandemic operations. But we've been very productive. And as I say, fortunately, uh, no one has been seriously affected by the coronavirus in our company. Well, that is definitely good news to hear because it is definitely a devastating disease. And it is good to know that the people we count on in developing novel treatment options, not necessarily in COVID, but beyond COVID as well, are staying healthy. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Now, you are and your team at Sutra developing, among other things, antibody drug conjugates. As mentioned in your introductions, they are very targeted drugs. Looking at the industry in general, over the last 25 to 30 years, we've seen the approval of a total of 10 antibody drug conjugates, which are commercially available in the United States. Earlier this month, there was some interesting news. The Chinese medicine regulator conditionally approved a new ADC called Decitamab Fedotin, which was previously called RC48. This new ADC was developed by Ramogen Biosciences, a Chinese biotech company, and is used for the treatment of gastric cancer. In the United States, I think the drug is still in clinical development, but last year the FDA granted a breakthrough status for this drug. The conditional approval in China may ultimately result in Decitamab Fedotin becoming the 11th approved and globally available ADC. Now, how important is this development and how unique is it? Well, I think it's a signal that the industry has matured quite a bit. You know, ADCs, as you well know, have been a modality that have been around for probably 30 years at this point in time. And they've been challenging and they've had a lot of ups and downs when Adcetris was approved and then Cadsila. I think people started to realize that the industry and the way you make ADCs has been maturing and that our understanding of how they operate in the body has also increased tremendously from what was known in the early days. And I think the third thing that it recognizes is that the CMC approach, the chemistry manufacturing and controls understanding of how to make these in a consistent and robust fashion uh, has improved. So uh, a sign that uh, another regulatory body, in this case China, has enough confidence in both the safety and efficacy of this ADC, as well as the uh, manufacturability of that ADC, I think is a real recognition of the progress that the industry has made over these last 30 years. You know, I'm, I'm sure that they will continue to move that drug forward in the United States because of the big market opportunity that's here. But I think the fact that other regulatory bodies can accept uh, an ADC that uh, hasn't been through U.S. approval really is a, a milestone in recognition of all the progress that's been made in our industry. The fact that a Chinese regulator approved this drug first, that is relatively unique in the industry as well, right? It is. Uh, you, you are seeing, though, a greater emphasis, particularly in Chinese-based companies, 
to make sure that they're taking advantage of their home market and their home turf first. And so it's not, you know, we don't see it uh, a lot in ADCs. This is the first one, as you mentioned. But there are other areas where Chinese companies are taking their drugs to market first in China and then later to the rest of the world. Now, another development. Earlier this year, Zydus Kadilia, an Indian biopharmaceutical company, launched the world's first biosimilar antibody drug conjugate of trastuzumab emtensine for the treatment of HER2-positive breast cancers. The biosimilar uses trastuzumab emtensine, originally developed by Genentech and Roche, and branded as a Katsila, as the reference product. How unique is this development? Because again, a biosimilar in ADCs? Yeah, I know that there's been a lot of work going on for biosimilar ADCs. That's a really challenging molecule to make a biosimilar of. So uh, kudos to them for figuring out how to do it. You know, the antibody, uh, as we know, antibodies uh, are really the product of a process and a cell line. Uh, And so if you don't have the same cell line, because it's proprietary to the innovator, to be able to derive an antibody that functions well enough to be accorded biosimilar status, and then conjugate a linker and a warhead using the same methods of conjugation that the innovator used, and then be able to analyze and assay your ADC to establish that its properties not only are consistent from batch to batch, but consistent with the innovator molecule, that's a pretty high bar uh, for a lot of companies to go through. And so kudos to them for, you know, figuring it out. Uh, I think it's going to be the exception rather than the rule. And I know for the molecules that we make, unless you have access to our cell-free extract, which is really the starting material for any molecule we make, you're not going to be able to make the same quality of antibody that we make. Uh, And so biosimilars will be a particular challenge for molecules made using our Sutro cell-free protein synthesis technology. But for other molecules that are made using Cho lines, obviously this demonstrates that it can happen. And uh, not easy, but it can happen. A biosimilar is difficult to develop to start with. But again, a biosimilar ADC makes it, I would say, twice, maybe three times as difficult to accomplish? Oh, I think it's triple or quadruple probably. Let's take a break. If you're just joining us, in this episode of the Oncogene Brief, I'm talking with Bill Newell. Bill is the Chief Executive Officer and a member of the Board of Directors of Sutro Biopharma, a clinical stage drug discovery, development and manufacturing company. The company is using precise protein engineering and rational design to advance the development of the next generation oncology therapeutics for areas of unmet medical need and where the current standard of care is suboptimal. I'm Peter Hovland and this is the youngest in brief. Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. But for the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word. Life-changing and devastating because sarcoma is cancer. Sarcoma is a cancer of bone and soft tissue more prevalent in children than in adults. More than 6,000 people lose their lives to sarcoma each year. Treatment options for sarcoma are limited, and new therapies are desperately needed. More research and increased awareness is necessary to find a cure for a cancer that you probably didn't even know existed until now. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is determined to help those affected by this forgotten cancer, to bring hope 
to the children and adults whose lives are forever changed by a word they had never heard before. Please help us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on sarcoma and the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, please go to curesarcoma.org. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Yonkazine Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Bill Newell. Bill is the Chief Executive Officer and a member of the Board of Directors of Sutro Biopharma. Now, we just finished the annual meetings of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, as well as the European Hematology Association meeting. When you look at some of the developments presented at these meetings, what stands out in terms of not only ADCs, but maybe some of the other treatment options that you may have heard of as well? You know, I'm going to stick with ADCs for this answer, Peter, because I do think ADCs are coming of age. You know, it seemed like there was a lot of enthusiasm around the time of Etcetris and Cancela when they were first approved. And frankly, Sutro began working on ADCs in 2011 uh, as well. So, you know, we saw the wave coming. But as we've talked about already, ADCs are very difficult to make and to optimize the molecule so that you get that right therapeutic window where you can dose the patient and keep the tumor under control is challenging. But over the last several years, we have seen time and again, new ADCs overcome those hurdles, come to market, and have blockbuster drug potential. And I think that's what's exciting, that we finally have truly targeted therapies that are offering significant benefit to patients that do represent that next generation of therapy. And so while I can't point to anything in particular at those two last conferences that I am excited about, I can say I'm very excited about the prospects for the industry. I think we've reached a tipping point where we have made enough mistakes now that we have learned from them and that we have access to better tools than we had before. And as a consequence, I think we're getting better at the process of discovering and developing and manufacturing new ADC therapeutics. So I'm really thrilled with uh, the progress the industry has made. I think you refer to the fact that today the majority of ADCs are definitely using a different technology than ADCs that are developed maybe 10, 15 years ago when the first ADC were approved. Today we see more site-specific ADCs and there is a bispecific ADC in development. Now tell me a little bit more how ADCs and the development of these ADCs has changed. You know, I was going to say, Peter, I remember back, you know, in the 2010-2011 timeframe when we were thinking about going into ADCs, how challenging the technology was. You took an antibody that targeted the tumor in a preferential way, ideally, and then you had to try to find some way to attach a linker and a warhead. And oftentimes, well, always, it was a heterogeneous mixture because you couldn't control the sites of conjugation. And many times, there were multiple sites of conjugation, and so you ended up with a product that was a mixture. And, you know, the FDA understood that if they were going to approve these therapeutics, uh, they needed to come up with a way to ensure that the mixture was consistent batch to batch. And so they 
first companies to calculate a drug load distribution, which is really uh, a measure of how many warheads are loaded on any individual molecule and to what extent are they loaded in various ways. And that's a very complicated thing to figure out, but the industry was able to figure out. It was really a sign that these molecules were good enough, but they didn't have the specificity and the homogeneity that a small molecule drug has. Even even a biologic is, um, to a certain degree, uh, heterogeneous because it can have different glycosylation patterns uh, as you make the antibody, for example. And so what we thought was the case and what we're proving now, we think, in the clinic is that if you can make a single species that is homogeneous, every molecule in the vial looks the same. Every molecule in the vial is equally competent to kill the tumor. Then you have a chance to actually enhance uh, the drug as a therapeutic. And I remember the early debates about controlled heterogeneity is just fine. Bystander effect, which is, I think of as excess toxicity, is just fine. And why were they justifying those things? Because they couldn't do anything any different. And so, yes, controlled heterogeneity was good enough for regulatory approval, but it was far from optimal. And bystander effect would lead to off target toxicity that might be beneficial in some cases, but it was excessive toxicity. But again, there wasn't a way to control it. And now, as you pointed out rightly, people have come to understand that if you can make a homogeneous molecule, you're going to have a better molecule at the end of the day. But it's not just the homogeneity that's necessary. You actually have to make the right homogeneous molecule. We've done some work preclinically where we made 400 versions of trastuzumab and we placed our non-natural amino acid every conceivable place on that antibody that you could. And we then attached the same linker and warhead to it to make something that looked like a CADSILA biosimilar or perhaps even a biobetter. And what we came to understand was even though all of those molecules were homogeneous, all 400 of them, some performed better than others. And it was all a function of where you placed the linker and the warhead and had a solid attachment at that location. And, and so, you know, I think the industry is little by little coming to apply small molecule drug design principles, structure activity relationship concepts to these very complicated molecules. And that's resulting in better molecules. We're also getting more and different classes of warheads. You know, sometimes people think that a more potent warhead is better. And oftentimes that can be the case. But you have to remember that um, once the warhead has done its damage inside the tumor microenvironment, how are you taking care of that warhead exiting the body without doing collateral damage uh, that really is counterproductive to the treatment uh, approach that you want to have if you're going to combine, say, a checkpoint inhibitor to try and get immune system response. You might be destroying some of the immune cells that you wish you'd left alone. So I think we're getting smarter and we're applying small molecule principles more and more, and that's improving the quality of the drugs that are being developed. And that's certainly the approach that Sutro has been pioneering since 2011. Now, looking at Sutro and looking at what Sutro is doing, in addition to the number of ADCs that you are developing yourself, such as STRO001, a CD74 targeting ADC, and STRO002, a folate receptor alpha targeting ADC, 
you are also working with industry partners in developing ADCs. Tell me a little bit about some of those developments, because I understand that earlier this year, you had some good news to share. Yeah, so we've been very fortunate to have established collaborative research and development relationships with some very significant pharmaceutical companies, with Bristol-Myers Squibb, with EMD Sereno, and with Merck and Co., among others. And you know what's special about those relationships, Peter, is that they really were true collaborations. We worked with our partners at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Actually, they were at Celgene before Celgene was bought, but many of them continued with Bristol-Myers Squibb to design a BCMA-targeting antibody drug conjugate. Now, BCMA is a very exciting target for the treatment of multiple myeloma, and Celgene then and Bristol today wanted to make certain that they had all the different modalities covered to really go after BCMA for the benefit of myeloma patients. And so they had a CAR-T. They actually had a couple of CAR-T therapies. They acquired a bispecific uh, antibody against BCMA, and they didn't have an antibody drug conjugate. And so we were asked to design a best-in-class antibody drug conjugate. That molecule was designed and put into the clinic in less than three years, uh, which we're very proud of, and it's a molecule that has been moving through dose escalation since the second half of 2019. Now, we're excited that Bristol has indicated that they will be uh, presenting their dose escalation data at a scientific conference later this year. And so we really look forward to seeing how that molecule performs. Of course, there's another one that's already been approved, but that molecule comes with a high degree of ocular toxicity, and that really limits the therapeutic utility of that molecule. Again, that's a molecule that was good enough for regulatory approval, good enough for patient benefit, but not the optimally designed molecule that we believe Bristol is moving forward. The second program that we have is with EMD Serono, and this is a really interesting program. This is the first bispecific antibody drug conjugate going after two different targets to enter the clinic in, in our industry's history. So this molecule targets MUC1 and EGFR. And, uh, you know, EMD Serono, known in Europe as Merck KGAA, has a very significant EGFR franchise. Herbitox is a, a flagship molecule for them. And so to have a more specific, as a result of the bispecific structure, antibody drug conjugate to really add to their armamentarium was a really exciting prospect for them. And we worked well with them to develop this molecule, to manufacture it, and it started clinical development early this year. And so we're really looking forward to the readouts from the dose escalation portion of that study uh, when they're ready for it. That's going after solid tumors and ultimately non-small cell lung cancer and esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. And then the last collaboration we have right now of significance is with Merck and Company, and that's a cytokine derivative collaboration. Now, I know we're talking a lot about ADCs, and we've just talked a little bit about bispecific ADCs. How do cytokine derivatives come into play? Well, the way you make a cytokine derivative is very much the same way you make an antibody drug conjugate. Instead of an antibody, you have the cytokine, and you still want to derivatize it by attaching uh, some other moiety to it in a site-specific manner to improve the therapeutic utility of that molecule. And so 
taking the technology and the design principles from the ADC space to the cytokine derivative space was a natural for us. And we started this collaboration with Merck in July of 2018. And I'm excited that, you know, here we are in 2021 and less than three years from the start of that collaboration, we received a $15 million milestone from Merck because the molecule was entering IND-enabling studies. So cytokines have been very helpful in terms of improving the immune response of checkpoint inhibitors, but they're very tricky to make, and not all of them work equally well, and there's a lot of room for design improvement in our minds. And so we've been working collaboratively with Merck to really optimize uh, a cytokine that could enhance uh, the value uh, to a patient of a drug like Detruda. And, you know, getting to that stage of IND-enabling tox is a, a pretty advanced stage, and we're excited to see that ultimately go into the clinic as well. So we've uh, been blessed to have these relationships. We've had uh, very strong partnerships with each of these companies, and we look forward to their continued uh, evolution in the clinic. Uh, and, you know, it'll be nice if we get the Merck molecule uh, into the clinic. That'll be three signature molecules for three major partners and that's a, a three for three record is something you hardly see in our industry uh, from a small upstart biotech company like Sutra Biopharma. I must say that's definitely very exciting news that you're sharing with us. Let's take a short break and then we're back with Bill Newell. Bill is the chief executive officer and a member of the board of directors of Sutra Biopharma. Each day, researchers make new discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Some days they take small steps. Others' huge discoveries lead to giant leaps forward. This progress, both small steps and giant leaps, happens with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are a fundamental path to progress and the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Clinical trials introduce new hope in addition to the current standard of care by allowing researchers to provide participants access to cutting edge and potentially life-saving treatments. So if you're interested in exploring new treatment options while helping to light the path for other patients, clinical trials may be the best choice for you. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more about clinical trials. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Alkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Oncosim Brief, I'm talking with Bill Newell. Bill is the Chief Executive Officer and a member of the Board of Directors of Sutro Biopharma. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncosim Brief. Going back to ADCs, one of the things we've seen is that there are more antibody drug conjugates being approved and, and also being developed for the treatment of liquid cancers or hematological malignancies compared to ADCs for the treatment of solid tumors. Can you tell us a little bit about the complexities of ADCs and why it seems to be easier to develop ADCs for hematological disease rather than for solid tumors? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Peter. And you know, the industry discovered, I think, by trial and error, to be honest with you, and, and 
more error than, than success, that uh, antibody drug conjugates seem to be better tolerated in the hematologic malignancies and the toxicities could be, could be better managed. And, and I think it has to do with the targets and the internalization in the liquid tumor as opposed to a solid tumor and a greater specificity that you might find in liquid tumors for the targets. You know, for a solid tumor, target selection is really a, a challenge because of the sometimes ubiquitous nature uh, of the target that's being expressed. I'm going to give you an example using our LUC1 EGFR biospecific. If you think about the drugs that are like Arbitux or going after that, uh, EGFR is expressed on a whole variety uh, of tissues. And so if you're going to go after EGFR with a cancer therapeutic, you're necessarily going to hit uh, some other healthy cells that express the target as well. And that creates challenges from a toxicity profile. But if you can find a way to leverage two different targets that ordinarily are not accessible to a bispecific uh, antibody in a healthy cell, but are accessible when the healthy cell becomes a tumor cell, uh, then you have this added layer of specificity that you've been able to take advantage of. And it's that extra degree of specificity that then allows you to make certain that your cell-killing moiety, your warhead, is actually doing the damage to the maximum extent possible in the tumor microenvironment and not doing damage that is collateral in healthy tissues. And so I think um, that's a great example of understanding the biology of the EGFR antigen and how it presents itself in healthy cells and how it morphs in tumor cells and then taking advantage of that understanding of biology. And then you have to get the internalization right. Uh, it's just a lot of challenges with solid tumors, but I'm thrilled that we're seeing more and more solid tumors being targeted by antibody drug conjugates. So it's not just a liquid tumor uh, therapy. We didn't know that at the time we started our two clinical programs at Sutro. And so I said, let's try our platform technology out and let's go after a hematologic malignancy, which we are with our O1 program targeting CD74 for multiple myeloma and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then let's go after a solid tumor target, ovarian cancer, which is what we're doing with our two program. Because we didn't know, would our platform have a bias to one or the other? And what we've come to understand subsequently is uh, now that we have two programs in the clinic for hematologic malignancies and two programs in the clinic for solid tumors, no, our platform is not biased one way or the other. The design of the molecule is biased, but the platform is not biased. That makes it also very interesting, understanding the biology of cancer and then focus on that to develop new drugs and how that understanding actually takes us to the next steps of developing ADCs. Now, in the development of ADCs at Sutro, you're using a proprietary platform technology, your own technology platform, a cell-free technology platform that forms the basis of your success. Can you tell us a little bit more about how unique that technology platform is? what it involves, and what makes it unique? Yeah, Peter, that's a, a great question. I, I think, you know, we are fortunate that our founder, Jim Swartz, is a professor at Stanford University, had, had 
lots of experience at Genentech before he went to Stanford. And the whole concept of cell-free protein synthesis, that was invented about 40, 50 years ago. The problem with it is that when you pull the ribosomal machinery out of a cell to use that machinery for cell-free protein synthesis, you need an energy source that is not cost prohibitive. And in this case, the ribosomal machinery requires ATP and GTP to actually work and give you the protein of interest that you're trying to make. And so at small scale, you can feed the machinery ATP and GTP. But, you know, if you're going to run it at GMP scale, you know, at 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 liter reaction volume, the amount of ATP and GTP you need would make these drugs prohibitively cost expensive. They would just be through the roof, much more expensive than our drugs are today. And so what our founder, Jim Schwartz, did is he said cells take starting materials and they make ATP and they make GTP and then they consume it and then they make more. What's the process by which they do that? And can I keep that process active even when I have taken the ribosomal machinery out of the living cell and put it in a test tube? And it was his insight as to how you would do that that was really the foundation for Sutro. Now, why would you want to do it? Cho cells have been around for a long time. They seem to work perfectly well as discovery and production vehicles. And the same is true of E. coli. I think one of the things that we've come to understand is that if you want to make a homogeneous product and you want to apply small molecule drug discovery rules of structure activity relationship, where the product at the end of the day has multiple moving parts that you need to, it's almost like a Rubik's cube, right? You can twist a Rubik's cube around and until you get it into the proper conformation, it's a mess. Well, you know what? We're trying to use the cell-free extract to help us do that Rubik's cube to get to that proper combination. We can make a large molecule, an antibody in less than 24 hours. We have roboticized research environments that allow us to make hundreds or thousands of those overnight should we choose to do so. And so we get to try all of these various combinations, moving that Rubik's cube around until we finally find the one combination, and there is only one, that is the optimal combination to take forward into clinical development. And so the approach that we've used is it's really rationally based and it's biology based as well, but you need to bring the two components together. Most companies, in contrast, they have a, an antibody that they like, and now they're trying to tweak the conjugation chemistry in a way to make the antibody, you know, attach a linker and a warhead at a particular site. That's a really big challenge to do. You can put it at the N-terminal, you can put it at the C-terminal. Those are a little easier. But as I said, not every site uh, is equal in terms of uh, the molecule that you're making. And so maybe a company using Cho can make half a dozen, 12 different cell lines for an antibody drug conjugate. We can make hundreds. And we then rationally winnow them down until we find the optimal one. And that's a huge advantage. Now, if it took us weeks to months to, to make a product, obviously it wouldn't be very useful. But it's that ability to overnight iterate and reiterate. 
and ask a hypothesis, get some feedback, ask a different hypothesis, get some feedback, and continually improve it until you get that right combination where the Rubik's Cube actually looks the way you want it to, that's, you know, that's the special sauce that uh, cell-free protein synthesis enables. And I think that it also makes it easier and, as you said, faster in producing, which makes it also easier for the analytical process, leading to the ultimate choice of the molecule, right? Absolutely. No, we've um, used high-throughput methods since 2011, 2012, and that's been fundamental to our discovery effort. Let's take a break. If you're just joining us, in this episode of the Oncocene Brief, I'm talking with Bill Newell. Bill is the Chief Executive Officer and a member of the Board of Directors of Sutro Biopharma, a clinical stage drug discovery, development and manufacturing company. The company is using precise protein engineering and rational design to advance the development of the next generation oncology therapeutics for areas of unmet medical need and where the current standard of care is suboptimal. I'm Peter Hovland and this is the Youngest in Brief. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with a sun protection factor, or SPF, of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. UVA rays age the skin, UVB rays burn, and both cause cancer. But the perfect sunscreen doesn't count if you use it wrong. Don't need sunscreen on a cloudy day? Wrong. 80% of UV rays still get through the haze. Only use sunscreen at the beach? Nope. Anytime you're outside, UV rays attack the skin, so you need protection. And you have to reapply sunscreen every two hours. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. This is the Alkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Oncocene Brief, I'm talking with Bill Newell. Bill is a chief executive officer and a member of the board of directors of Sutro Biopharma. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncocene Brief. We talked a little bit about Sutro and drug development at Sutro, but let's switch gears a little bit and look again at the industry in general. So far, the development of new ADCs and ADC technology focuses on developments within oncology and hematology. But there are some interesting developments outside of the realm of oncology and hematology as well. Last year, Magenta presented results of a CD45 targeting antibody drug conjugate, not as a treatment for disease, but as an investigational conditioning agent demonstrating successful immune reset to halt disease progression in multiple models of sclerosis, systemic sclerosis, and inflammatory arthritis. Their goal is to develop a targeted disease-modifying antibody drug conjugate designed to selectively and rapidly remove disease-causing cells in the body and enable the immune and blood system reset and long-term engraftment without the need for aggressive chemotherapy or radiation. And there are many other programs where scientists are looking at ADCs for applications outside the realm of oncology and hematology. Now, 
for where you are, when you look at these developments, how important is this development for ADCs and the industry? I mean, how important is it that ADCs are now taking a step outside of the familiar area of oncology and hematology? Oh, I think it's very important, Peter. You know, I, I thought that this would happen sooner than it has. Um, you know, the, the, I think the reality is that because we are spending so much time looking at cell killing, and because we know for cancer patients, uh, they'll tolerate uh, a certain amount of toxicity, it's the natural default for an antibody drug conjugate. But I think there is no reason why ADCs shouldn't be explored for other therapeutic benefit beyond oncology. It requires you, though, to reset your mindset. You need to understand, again, what is the desired biological effect that I want to have and what combination of things uh, unlock that biological effect and, uh, you know, how do I manage the safety? As I said, cancer patients and cancer physicians will tolerate toxicity to a much greater degree than other patients will. So you have to be super mindful of safety if you're going to go outside of oncology, not to say that we're not, you know, super careful about it in oncology, but it's more tolerated. And so it's exciting for me to see the application of antibody drug conjugates outside of oncology as well. And I think that's just something that's going to continue. Again, the more tools we have, the better we understand the way to make these molecules. I think there's no question that site-specific conjugation is here to stay. I think the industry is moving to this homogeneous concept of molecular design. I think the regulatory authorities are going to start to require that as molecules move forward. Hard to require something when nobody can do it, but now that people are able to do it, it's easy to require people to do it in the future. It's sort of like the experience from thalidomide where you learn that you know, if you have a racemate and you can make an enantomer, you ought to be making the enantomer because the racemate has undesirable side effects. And so I think we're seeing the agency move more in that direction. And I think as we get to better control, better design molecules, we will move beyond oncology. And you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg in the example that you just referenced. I can assume that in the near future, Sutra may also be looking at opportunities for ADCs outside oncology and hematology? We have considered opportunities outside of oncology. In fact, our collaboration with Merck on cytokine derivatives envisions autoimmunity as a potential area for molecules in our collaboration to find utility. So there, we're you know, mindful of the various opportunities and potential of a platform like ours. And matter of fact, we've also spun out of business. I haven't mentioned this to you previously. I think it's called Vaxite. It's a very exciting publicly traded company using our technology to make a next generation pneumococcal conjugate vaccine that will go far beyond Prevnar 13 in terms of its protective nature against uh, uh, strains of pneumonia. So very excited about the use of our technology in the vaccine space as well. So that means that you are using the same cell-free technology you're using in the development of ADCs to develop vaccines? That's correct. They uh, make a protein carrier with our non-natural amino acids, and they attach the polysaccharides to it to create this very protective, we hope, vaccine candidate that should be entering the clinic sometime next year. So we'll get a chance to see the application of our technology 
in the vaccine space next year. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for the time you spent with us today. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing the results of the development of your own ADCs and the programs you're developing with your partners. Thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to being able to walk you through more exciting developments at Sutro in the future. And we will definitely have time for that. Absolutely. In this episode of The Youngest in Brave, I spoke with Bill Newell. Bill is the Chief Executive Officer and a member of the Board of Directors of Sutra Biopharma, a clinical stage drug discovery, development and manufacturing company. For more information about Sutro, visit the company's website at www.sutrobio.com. For us here at The Youngest in Brave, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors and advertisers, for your ongoing support. Your support makes it possible that you can hear this program via PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. And you can also download our program via podcast and streaming media, including iTunes and Spotify. For more information about supporting the Oncuisine Brief, go to Oncuisine at Oncuisine.com. And as I mentioned earlier in the program, this episode of the Oncuisine Brief was made in collaboration with our partners at ADC Review, Journal of Antibody Drug Conjugates. And you can find their website at adcreview.com. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER, that is C-A-N-C-E-R, to 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all. And thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hoffeland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. The Oncazine Brief is produced by Sun Valley Communication in association with Physicians Weekly and the American Association of Medical Education. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about advertising, underwriting, and sponsoring options, visit Oncazine at www.oncazine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medical-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content in this program is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice and guidance. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it. <laughs>